Revelation 19 is where we are. Revelation 19, we made it down through verse 10 last week. We're going to pick it up in verse 11 um, and just probably cover a few verses today. But we're going to read from 11 through the end and see what is being said as God has given us this text. And it's a, a wonderful text. This is where we have been waiting to arrive um, in all of Scripture. This is some of the best Scripture um, for us as a church, as the Christian church. You should literally have this memorized. It's that uh, important and amazing. So why don't you stand to your feet and find verse 11. All right. If you are ready, say amen. amen. Now I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with the rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in the presence, in his presence, by whom he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded. proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And Father, we thank you this morning for this text because all scripture we know has been inspired by you and is profitable for us. And so this morning, I pray that you would do a mighty work on the inside of us through your word, Lord God, that you would continue to wash us, to strengthen us, to build our faith, Lord, to kindle zeal within us, Lord God. I pray that this morning you would take all of the things away from us, the concerns of this life and the burdens of, of this world, the, the cares that we have on our hearts and our minds, away the distractions from the room, Lord, and move it all out of the way. Let us hear what you would have to say by your spirit. Lord, do a work in those who have gathered here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. And so as we turn our attention now to this, probably one of the most anticipated events in all of Scripture. And definitely, as you read it, it's almost hard to swallow, especially if you're new to going through the Bible. Um, some of what we read 
seems pretty gruesome almost, almost hard to swallow and hard to fathom as we see this war that's about to take place. This war, which you see a lot of flesh being destroyed. Uh, there's a supper here for the birds of the air that uh, we saw the supper of the lamb, the marriage supper of the lamb in the last part of this, that what we studied last week. But now we see this supper happen, if you will. And uh, those who've been deceived, those who have received the mark of the beast, those who are worshiping the, the enemy, uh, they are turning with the beast and with the false prophet to fight the Lord as he returns. And we see all of this destruction and it's almost hard for us to fathom. And one of the problems in Christianity, I believe, is that we've over-feminized Christianity and we forget that there is, that God made us male and female, you know, equal but different in, in a sense. And, and so on one hand, you take David and David can go out and kill 200 Philistines and in the other hand, come back and write poetry in the same day worshiping God. And so it's really okay for the men of God to be men and for the women of God to be women and both have a uh, add flavor to this thing that we have called humanity, particularly Christianity, because Christianity is humanity lived the right way. And as we see this, it's good for us to see Jesus this way because we're used to seeing Jesus, you know, in the Sunday school Jesus where, you know, um, he's. He's multiplying fish sandwiches, which we love, right? Amen. <laughs> he's feeding thousands of people. Uh, we love that. He's healing the lame man. And, you know, he's let, let suffer the little children to come and sit with me and all of these wonderful things that Jesus does. But what we have to understand, because of that Jesus who loves in that way, he now has to bring utter destruction upon a world who has corrupted, who has killed, who has raped and molested and, and, and uh, destroyed and corrupted the earth for so long, he is coming to fight. And all the prophets warned and told about this coming day. Zechariah said in Zechariah chapter 14, and before I start reading, what we have to remember is that this war began, we began to see hints of it way back in uh, chapter 16 of Revelation. If you remember, it was the, the dragon who was Satan. Y'all remember? Remember not? Okay. The false prophet and the beast that they all had demonic spirits that looked something like frogs coming out of their mouth. Y'all remember that? And those demonic spirits went out to the kings of the earth to manipulate them to gather for this battle. So in one respect, you see Satan and his kingdom scrambling to get ready to fight the Lord. But when we read the Old Testament prophets written thousands of years ago, the prophets say that God is gathering these nations to this battle. In fact, Zechariah says in chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, which I think I have on the screen, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. We've talked about the day of the Lord. We're deep in it now in Revelation. And your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I, God, will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. And he goes on to say, as the prophets see the near and the far, he says, the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then he says, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, meaning when the Lord returns to earth, he touches down 
on the Mount of Olives as he makes his way from the east, bringing with him the nation of Israel, which were hidden for three and a half years. And it goes on, it says, which faced Jerusalem and on the east, he says, the Mount of Olives shall be split into from east to west, making a very large valley. We know that half of the mountain shall be moved towards the north, half towards the south. So it speaks of when Jesus returns, this battle goes on. But when he makes his way to Jerusalem, he steps down on the Mount of Olives and it splits. We won't go into that right now, the details of it, but we've talked about it. Joel says it this way, Joel chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Joel says, For behold, in those days and at that time when I, have, when I will uh, bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, meaning he's brought them back, I will also gather all the nations, speaking of the last days. Well, the Lord has already brought um, his captives back. They are in the land now. And so in these last days, he's going to gather all the nations and notice, bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's Megiddo from Revelation chapter 16. And I will enter, notice, into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. God says, I'm going to gather the nations and I'm going to judge them there for what they have done to my people. Joel goes on to say, chapter 3, verse 14 through 15, he says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Notice he says, the sun and the moon will grow dark. The stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. And he's speaking of right before the Lord returns, the moon will be darkened. We've already read this, and the sun will not give its light. And the, the imagery that the Old Testament prophets, as well as the book of Revelation, is telling us is that by now, listen, at this point, the earth is devastated. There is no light shining. The air quality has diminished. There is no fresh water. There's only blood. The seas all turn to blood. Um, the earth is completely darkened, and the Antichrist, or the beast rather, is gathering the nations to do battle. And in the midst of that, all of a sudden, they're going to see something. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says, For as lightning comes from the east to the west and flashes to the west, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And he says, wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And then he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun, here it is again, will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Notice he says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. In other words, from earth's view is total darkness, total devastation. All of a sudden, something extremely bright coming through the heavens and says that the sign of the Son of Man here will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, notice. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, uh, from one end of heaven to the other. In other words, it will be completely dark, and all of a sudden the sign of the return of Jesus will be in the sky. And notice every tribe will mourn. Every tribe will mourn because at this point they will realize that they have been lied to and manipulated and they've worshiped the wrong God as they see Jesus coming in great glory, it says here. And they will mourn. You see, only left on the earth at this point are those who um, either took the mark of the beast and they are doomed 
or those who have not taken the mark of the beast who either came to faith and survived the tribulation or maybe didn't come to faith for whatever reason, but they survived the tribulation and the Lord will sort them out when he arrives, whoever's left after this great battle. And so on earth right now, it is dark. The earth has been devastated through the tribulation as the Lord has been uh, pouring out his wrath upon the earth. And now at the end of that tribulation period, um, John writing says, I saw notice heaven open. You notice that in verse one? And then now we get to look at this and we see um, the, 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 where the Lord is coming from, which is heaven. Um, he is coming from heaven itself. And John sees heaven open. And this is the second time. If you remember back in chapter 4, John saw a door open in heaven. Y'all remember that? Do y'all remember that? He saw a door open in heaven. He heard a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here. John was caught up in the heavens where he saw the throne of God. Y'all remember that? And it's a beautiful thing. Now, John is kind of, if you will, a representative of the church, almost a type of the church, if you will. As he gets caught up in the heaven in chapter 4, we do not see the church on earth as a whole anymore until we get to chapter 19, which gives us the picture of the church being raptured prior to the tribulation and being caught up in the heaven. And then on earth, it'd be utter destruction and wrath. And we see tribulation saints getting saved during the tribulation. So we see that. But now again, once more, heaven is open. But it's not a door this time. He literally sees heaven open. Now, you got to kind of get the scene because it's going to be very beautiful to go through this. Because at this point, ladies and gentlemen, if you're saved, nod at me if you are, you are in heaven as well. And you're going to see this same scene from that view. So you got there two views from earth. There's mourning because there's bright light now shines as the, the fabric of space time is being pulled back and heaven is literally open, whether it looks like a portal being open or whatever on the earth, they will see this. And then all of a sudden in heaven, we will see this from the other side and it will be magnificent. It will be something that will be so spectacular. We're going to be so excited. you got to catch the scene. We're going to be in heaven. Check it out. And there's the announcements going to go out that it's time to prepare. We've been up there for seven years with the Lord. And all of a sudden, he's, he's clothed us in white. We are decorated like soldiers and officers in a kingdom or an army. That's what we're going to be like. And he's going to have us sorted out. And then he's going to tell us, we'll see it in a minute, to mount up. And then the angels probably are going to open, pull back the, the portal, if you will, of space-time, the fabric of space-time itself. And we will look through and we will see the earth devastated, looking nothing like it did when we left, completely devastated. And the crazy thing that we will see is we'll see the beast and the false prophet gathering armies to turn and battle the Lord. You know, the amazing thing about that is whenever I watch the Avengers movies, they always got something opening in the sky and the enemy coming through. And then all the Avengers turn to go fight the enemy. Y'all ever seen that? And every time I see it, I mean, the enemy is just preparing the earth for the big lie and the big delusion. Because the reality is what they're putting on the big screen is going to happen, but it's not going to be the enemy coming through. It's going to be the Lord returning. And they will manipulate and have all the earth, those who have taken the mark, go and fight against Christ and be utterly destroyed. And so heaven is open now. But notice this. And behold, a white horse, which I love. And he who sat on him is called faithful and true. Now, why uh, a white horse? 
The Lord doesn't need a horse, right? We know that. He doesn't need a horse at all. Why is he doing this? Because a horse shows a picture, if you will. It's ceremonial. Just like back in chapter 5, the ceremony of the inauguration of Jesus, when they're going through the motions, who's worthy to take the scroll and open it and look at it? Nobody's worthy. John begins to weep, and they say, don't worry. The the Lamb of God has prevailed, and Jesus comes up, and everybody's cheering and celebrating. Y'all remember that? This is ceremonial, y'all. This is not necessary, but it's kind of nice. Jesus has style. That's what this means. He doesn't need a horse, but let's do a horse. Why? Because on earth, they recognize the horse, the white horse in particular, as that which the conquering king and the centurions and the generals, when they would conquer in battle and they would return for the celebration riding on a white horse. And so Jesus gives a picture. He says, when I offered myself as the sacrifice to pay for your sin. And I even offered myself as your Messiah and King of the world. I came in on a white donkey or donkey and you rejected me. But now I come back on a horse as a conquering king and I will establish my kingdom and I'm coming to destroy everything that is wicked and that is evil. And that is a ceremonial picture of the, the conquering uh, time of the Lord Jesus and the festive celebration that goes along with this. So heaven's open and a white horse. And notice it says, he who sat on him. It, it, it depicts, as we look at this, the reputation and the record of Jesus as being one who is perfect in every way. Because notice it says, and he who sat on him is called faithful and true. I like that. He's called faithful and true. Not only that, look in verse 13. His name is called the word of God. You know this? You see this? He's called faithful and true. He's called the word of God. He's called faithful and true because listen, just like God's word does not come back void and Jesus is the living word, just like that, Jesus himself cannot come back void. He cannot fail. He cannot disappoint. He cannot come up short of that which he's attempting to do. Did y'all know that about the Lord? He cannot fail in any way. He cannot lie. He cannot disappoint. He can't do anything but conquer and be successful as uh, that in which he goes out to do. So he is called faithful and true. Everything that he says, we can take at face value. Everything he promises, he actually will deliver on. Did you know that? The world is filled with lies right now. Man, I know. I mean, I hear it. I see it. And y'all constantly sending me videos and everybody's worried about this is going to happen and that's going to happen and, and this is going to crash and China's coming and, and, and everything. And the truth, the truth is, look, some of that's true and some of it's not, but none of it matters. This is true and this will happen. And so his name is called the word of God. It says over in 13, the second part of verse 13. We know that the Bible tells us in John chapter one, verse one, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. We know this. And the word was what y'all. And he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him. Nothing was made that was made. He is the living word. He is God, and he is actually the creator, the Bible tells us. First John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, John says it this way. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning, notice the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. John writing, trying to give us a glimpse of something, trying to give us a picture of who Christ truly is, which we're going to continue to see as we go through this. His name is called many things. 
His name is Jesus. We call him Yeshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. According to the Gospels, his name is to be called Emmanuel, Emmanuel, which means God with us. We know that he is the Christ, which means that literally the anointed one of God, the Messiah, and all of these wonderful pictures. So we see that Jehovah is salvation through the anointed one of God, who is the living word of God, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, and all of these things, just to give us a flavor of who and what Jesus is. And so he has uh, a name. He's called righteous, faithful, and true. He's called the word of God. He's called King of kings and Lord of lords, all of those things which we see, which are wonderful. And notice in verse 1, it says here, in righteousness he judges and makes war. Again, it's hard to fathom the destruction that's going on, but Jesus is doing this in righteousness. In other words, he's allowed time for repentance. He's allowed time for the world to turn to him, and they have not and so, therefore, in righteousness, he judges, and Jesus makes war, as I shared with you earlier. Look at verse 12 as we begin to see uh, even more of his power. Verse 12 says, his eyes were like a flame of fire, y'all. In other words, his eyes, his gaze uh, is ablaze, if you will. He has a perfect penetrating gaze, which means that he can see all and nothing is hidden. Everything is uh, exposed at his view and he can see everything for what it is. He can divide the carnal from the spiritual. His gaze is purifying in every way. He has the ability to separate the sheep from the goat. Jesus has a perfect gaze of which nothing is hidden and he sees everything. Even right now this morning, he sees us individually as well as a congregation as we are. When he writes the seven letters, to the seven churches, he sees everything. You remember that? And this morning, he sees you for who you are. He sees your brokenness. He can see your fear. He can see your anxiety. He can see your sin that nobody else can see. He sees you as you are, and he still died for your sin. He sees you as you are, yet he still loves you and wants to do amazing works in you. He wants to forgive. He wants to cleanse. He wants to pour his spirit in. He wants to change. He wants to strengthen you. He wants to build you and make you into something that he can present to himself as perfect, but only he can do it. Do we know that? See, we lie to each other. We came in this morning hiding all kind of stuff <laughs> because that's what we do. And then we come in here to worship, and we need to understand this. When you come in to worship, you don't have to come in and be scared to worship. Jesus sees you. If he want, Look, if he wanted to smoke you and, and destroy you, he could have done it in the parking lot. He allowed you to get in here. What he wants is you to surrender before him so that he can do amazing things. His eyes are flame of fire. He will gaze at the world at his return. And he'll see it for what it is. He'll be able to divide the sheep from the goats. He'll be able to divide the carnal from the spiritual. He'll be able to deal with everything in a perfect way because in righteousness he judges and makes war. So he has a eyes of flame of fire. He sees everything. Nothing's hidden from him. And notice on his head were many crowns. Diadem is the word used there. It's the crown that the, the Persian kings would wear. In other words, many crowns because he's sovereign. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and omnipotent, and sovereign over everything so he wears many crowns Jesus is literally coming back to rule the world and so we see that is many crowns and on his head um, were many crowns and it says here in verse 12 he had a name notice written that no one knew or knows except himself you notice that why does he have a secret name did you catch that he has a name that no one knows except himself 
And we wonder why, I wonder anyway, why he has a name that is so secret. We know his name is Jesus. We know he's the word of God. We know that he's called um, righteous, uh, faithful, and true. We know that he also has a name written according to verse 16, which is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But he has a name here that no one knows but himself. It's a secret name. Why is that? You know, we remember at the burning bush, Moses said, who should I say has sent me? He says, I am that I am. You know, I'm everything. We know Jesus uses this very language in John chapter 8. Remember we shared that last week when he says before Abraham was, I what? I am. And they understood that he was making himself equal with God, so they tried to kill him. It's very interesting that often in the Old Testament we have what's called a Christophany, which is the appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Like when Joshua was about to fight, go against Jericho, and the Lord showed up as commander of the Lord's army. Y'all remember that one? Okay. Uh, Also, here's a nice one. In the book of Judges, chapter 13, Samson's parents met with, if you will, the angel of the Lord, which is often Christ in the Old Testament. And the angel told her who was barren that they would have a son and they were having that discussion. And they said, what is your name? And the angel of the Lord said, chapter 13, verse 8, why do you ask my name? seeing it is wonderful. In other words, why you want, why you want to know my name? It's wonderful. And what does that word wonderful mean? Well, it means it's incomprehensible and extraordinary. This word in the Hebrew is only used four times, twice in this verse, actually, for emphasis. The other time is in Psalm 139, verse 6, where it literally says, such knowledge is too wonderful or incomprehensible for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. So in other words, he's saying, why do you want to know my name? It's incomprehensible. I get the sense, listen, I get the sense that Jesus has a name that no one knows but himself, And it's probably because it's too incomprehensible and extraordinary to even be able to be expressed. Now, remember, Paul says when he was caught up to heaven, he heard things that were unlawful to even repeat. I don't even think John, even though when he got off the island of Patmos, everybody tried to get him to tell him what the name was, I'm sure. John couldn't put it in the text. He doesn't know it. And I don't even think it could be expressed to us. It indicates to me, listen. It indicates to me that there are things about the Lord that are incomprehensible and extraordinary that we couldn't even comprehend if we tried, which means that, listen, he is so amazing and so wonderful, we can't even fully know his name yet. And he'll probably uh, reveal it to us little by little throughout eternity because we're going to ever be learning of him and we're always going to be amazed by him. In fact, when we see the Lord, we would look, if we weren't in our resurrected bodies, we would just simply blow up. As soon as we see him, right? But the Bible says that when we will see him, we, look, the Bible says this, 1 John chapter 3, we don't know yet what we're going to be, but what we know is that when we see him, we're going to see him as he is, for we will be like him. So he will make us like himself so that he can reveal himself to us and we'll be able to see him, but we'll ever be learning of him. His name is incomprehensible because listen, He is literally the living word of God. He is God's word seen. You can't uh, see God unless you look at Christ. He is the express image of the living God, and he holds everything together by the word of his power. In other words, Jesus is incomprehensible. Yeah, he is amazing, and we're going to always be learned of him. He has a name written that nobody knows except himself. He'll reveal it to us in his own time. Notice in uh, verse 13 as we continue. 
We're doing really good on time. We're going to finish early today. Notice he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And we often wonder, why is it dipped in blood? And scholars have a couple of different interpretations of this. But I'm going to give you the one that Scripture seems to identify for us. He has a robe that's dipped in blood. And it could be in anticipation of what's about to happen and what's about to unfold in this bloody battle that's happening. And Isaiah gives us a little indication of this. Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 4, which I've read to you before. But if you remember, Isaiah is kind of having a conversation with the Lord. Isaiah says, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one, notice Isaiah describes him as one is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. So Isaiah says, who is this coming with these dyed garments? He's glorious in his apparel. In other words, he's splendid to look at and he is coming in his own strength. Okay, no one is aiding him. Well, the Lord answers and says, I who uh, speak in righteousness mighty to save. So you know it's the Lord because he's the only one that's truly righteous and he is the only one mighty to save. And he describes himself as, uh, Isaiah says, well, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? And the Lord uh, answers and says, I have trodden the winepress alone. Notice this. And from the people, no one was with me for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled, notice, upon my garments. And I have stained all my robes. Why? For the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeem has come. In other words, the year of my redeem has come. It's time for my anger and my vengeance to be poured out upon a world that has literally and utterly persecuted my people, killed my people, destroyed my creation, and lived ungodly. And so literally it's time for him to execute his judgment upon the world and his garments are stained with the wrath and the war that is made as he returns. And notice as we continue, it says his robes are dipped in blood and notice he has a name called, which is the word of God. He's literally the living word of God. He is actually uh, executing out the word of God as well. Verse 14, notice he has an army. He commands an army. Verse 14 says, and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So now we have horses, plural. The Lord is on a white horse. The armies of heaven are following him on white horses, which means that in heaven somewhere, there's horse, there are horse stables and pastures all laid out for all of these horses. Now, who is this army that he commands? And now, well, I would say, according to scripture, that this army is made up of two different groups. One group is an obvious choice, this army has angels in it. How do we know? Well, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 says that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, that he will sit on the throne of his glory. And so the Lord is returning and he does obviously have angels with him. That makes sense that he would. But it's a mixed multitude because uh, it's not just angels. The Bible also says that it is saints. In fact, Jude Verse 14 and 15 on your screen, and you should take these notes, but look at what Jude says. Jude quoting Enoch, he says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes, notice, with ten thousands of his saints. Why? To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them, 
of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in a ungodly way. It's a lot of emphasis here, meaning to judge the ungodly and of all the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. But notice he returns with 10,000s of his saints. And that is a phrase which means literally 10,000s upon 10,000s upon 10,000s. It really alludes to a number that can't be numbered of his saints. Well, who are the saints that he returns with? Well, notice in verse 14 in our text again, it says, And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, follow him on white horses. Well, what does that, listen, what is that, as Scripture interprets scriptures, shed light on for us? Well, you remember back in verse 8. Look back with me in verse 8. Remember verse 7 says that his wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed. And what, y'all? Fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen are the righteous acts of the who? Verse 8 gives us an indication that the armies of heaven are made up of the saints. Or remember, it was his wife. And who is his wife? The church. Yes, those of us who are born again, who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus. So not only will he have angels with them at his return, but he'll also have his wife at this point, who is the church, who has not been on the earth since we left chapter 2 and 3. Why? Because she was raptured and has been in heaven with her Lord, if you will, for the wedding to take place. And now he is returning to conquer, and she is riding with him in shotgun. And guess what she's riding on, y'all? White horses. And guess where I'm at in this scene? As one of them, along with those of you who are saved, which is amazing because I can't even ride a horse. <laughs> and I don't even think I'm going to need lessons if it's just going to work out because the horses are going to do exactly what they're supposed to do anyway. None of them going to buck us off. We're going to hop on those things and we're going to ride back with the Lord. And so you got to catch the scene. So at some point in heaven, as we're celebrating and getting to know Jesus, there's going to be an announcement going out that we are to meet to be, uh, if you will, uh, have our uniforms given to us and then we will Assemble ourselves, and we'll be presented with a horse, I guess. Yeah, heaven's organized. It's going to be a whole process to this. You're going to be given a rank and order. We're going to get lined up. We're going to mount up. The command will be given to mount up on horses. you got to catch the scene because, you know, we just kind of glaze through this stuff. So we're going to mount up on horses. And how many of you can have ever ridden a horse? Be honest. It's like maybe a quarter of you. The rest of us will be right there with you, though. And we're going to mount up. The command will be given to open heaven, and he's going to pull it open. And that's when we'll see the devastated earth as the Lord then prepares to return and make war. And we'll ride through that portal into the atmosphere as the whole planet, all the people who have taken the mark of the beast, will gather together to come out to battle against him and us, it says later on down in the text. And the Lord will literally destroy them as he leads us to Jerusalem. And then he will remake the earth and he will establish his kingdom of which you, Christian, will be an officer in that kingdom. This is all that the Bible is giving us the indication of. This is what the Bible is telling us is going to happen. This, ladies and gentlemen, is true no matter what you heard on CNN. Jesus is coming back, and he's going to take over the earth, and we'll come in with him, and it's going to be glorious. 
And so notice it says here, the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. This is the scene that you want to be at. And if you don't know Christ today, I would urge you to turn from your way and turn to Christ for salvation because this is what we're going to experience. Now in verse 15, it says, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Now we know that we're taking this in a figurative way. This is not literal. The Lord doesn't have a sword coming out of his mouth. It speaks of the power of his word. It speaks of the fact that he will speak and he will judge. The earth will turn to him, whether they're using nuclear weapons, we don't know. Whatever they have, whatever technology they have, and with all the demonic influence that Satan will bring with that, and all the signs and wonders that the beasts are working and the false prophet are working, all of that will turn against him with all of their, their splendid war uh, technology, and the Lord will simply speak. What is he going to say? We don't know, but he will destroy the army as he speaks his word. In fact, he strikes, it says with it, notice in verse 15, it says, uh, and with it, he should strike the nations." And so literally with the word that comes out of his mouth, he is the living word. He will strike the nations and bring destruction upon them. It says, and he himself will rule them with the rod of iron. Now, that's interesting because it almost sounds like the dictatorships, because of the di dictatorships we've seen upon the earth, it doesn't sound good. Because on earth, when there's a dictatorship, there's always, if you will, corruption and conflict. We know that, right? But the Lord ruling means he will rule with righteousness. You won't be able to pay him off. You won't be able to bribe him. China won't be able to buy him, for instance. Okay? I'm trying to help you understand. It won't be any of that. He will rule righteously from Jerusalem, which will be the headquarters of the world, and the world will experience peace and prosperity like it's never seen before. You know, it's described as the lion and the, and the lamb or the calf being able to lay down together, the child being able to play with the poisonous snake and not have to worry. A child will be 200 years old during the millennial reign. In other words, the earth will be perfect again. There will be no death. He will rule the way things should be. And it says here, with a rod of iron, he will rule them. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And so the Lord is coming back. And he's coming back to take over the earth, to destroy all wickedness, to establish a kingdom of righteousness. And the earth will experience a thousand years rest. And it's going to be wonderful and it's going to be glorious. And the danger here is this. The danger for us, I should say, in the times we live in, we've seen so many crazy things. The temptation is us for us to look at this and almost, almost just see it as some child's story at bedtime. And the Lord is saying, no, this is my reality. This is where it's headed. And we should literally memorize this. We should know this. This is what we should be ready to share with those who have uh, a desire to know and understand what's going to be happening in the future. What's happening in the world right now and where is it headed? Forget what you're seeing on media. We are looking and reading today at where all of this is headed. We're not going to fix the world up. Do we know that? Yes. We're not going to change it. No, no, that's not going to happen. In fact, and the danger is this, y'all. The danger is right now that the Christian church is falling susceptible to more and more watered down, fluffy stuff where there's not really a consistent teaching of God's word in many places within the church. And there's a lot of false teaching on top of it. 
In fact, the Bible is very clear that there's going to be an apostasy. Many, the, the Spirit expressly says it in latter times, Paul said to Timothy, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons which are loose in the earth today. And a lot of the new age teachings that are in the church, they're simply doctrines of demons. A lot of things that we're seeing happening, even that we've seen on the streets of America in our media, uh, is, is literally by people who are following doctrines of demons. There's so much deception and corruption in the earth. And the Bible says, Christian, that it will get worse. That there's a strong delusion that's going to be uh, given over, the people of the world will be given over to because they don't want to receive the love of the truth. People have two options. They can accept Christ or they can accept the lie which is coming. That's what the Bible says. And so this is what's coming upon the earth. We're going to see what looks like Christianity getting weirder and falling away. You know, we're going to see people who we thought, we, we just simply thought that, you know, this person is, you know, solid person that we should follow. And then we'll see them fall. And we're not to be disheartened by that because Christ is who we're looking at and who we're looking for. Amen. See, when we take our eyes off Jesus, that's when things fall apart. Peter's the perfect example. He actually walked on water until he took his eyes off of Jesus. Perfect vi visual picture of how we get through this. We keep our eyes on him and we walk through it. Amen? That's how you get through it. You come out like the, like the three boys that went into the fiery furnace and they came out not even smelling like smoke. Staying with the Lord Jesus. Verse 16 says, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. This is his position when he returns that he takes king of kings and lord of lords. The beautiful thing about the kingdom that Jesus is going to establish and those who he allows to go in at the end of the tribulation in their human form, they will begin to repopulate the earth. But the nations that are left that get to go into the kingdom, the thousand years. And by the way, the Bible teaches that Jesus will establish a kingdom for a literal thousand years. That's not figurative. Okay, that is literal a millennium reign on the earth. It's almost a Sabbath for the earth, if you will, because for the first time, the earth will be where it won't have to deal with the destructive, sinful nature of humanity because Jesus will rule and he won't allow any of that. And so for that thousand years, as that's happening, all of those nations will worship Christ. They will have to go to Jerusalem once a year to worship him. And if they refuse to do that, they will be dealt with as Jesus will. He won't be like politicians we have. There is no righteous politicians, y'all. You can't trust man. Man's heart is wicked. All of them have a price of some sort or an agenda of some sort. Man is incapable of ruling righteously. And that's why we're not looking to that. We're not looking into a political party. We're not looking for a movement. We're not looking for a cause. We're looking for Christ. That's all the church is looking for. And we're to be his representatives until he gets here. So his name that's written on his robe and on his thigh, what's written of him is that he is the king of kings and that he is the Lord of lords. And until he gets here, we are to be sojourners of his kingdom as ambassadors in this world, but we're not of it. And that's so hard for Christians to deal with because he's called us to occupy until he comes. So the most difficult thing we have is how do I occupy without becoming completely of this world, right? Okay, I need to live here. I got to pay bills, right? 
we got to eat. You know, we we're supposed to do that. And he wants us as ambassadors. He's saying, look, get involved. Be, be, be everywhere as my ambassadors. But don't forget where you're from because I'm coming to destroy this. And if you're focused on stuff down here, the thing we know about everything that you may be striving for is the Bible says it's all going to burn. And you ain't taking none of it with you. <laughs> I like to remind you of that because I know some of you are maybe in the market for a brand new RV or brand new boat, which is cool. I mean, you could take people out on your boat and share the gospel with them. But ultimately, it's going to burn at the end of the day. So don't love it. I know a guy who has a, uh, one of those really expensive Shelby Mustangs. And he, somebody asked him, he says, you love your car? He said, "Nah, I like it. I don't love it. <laughs> I love the Lord. And so, man, just keep our eyes and our hearts on him because this is the truth. This is where everything is headed. So turn your heart to him. Bow your heads now. Maybe if you're distracted by the things of this life, the things of this world, the stuff you're seeing, all this stuff as you distract, distracted or fill with anxiety. Let's kind of be still for a moment. We've got time. I would pray now that you would settle down, open your hearts, and I'm just going to pray, Father, we ask, I ask, Lord, for every individual and every family in this place, Lord, that there would be nothing that they would be too attached to of this world that would distract them from your reality. And Lord, help us all this week as we go through this week that's coming. Remember the truth of your scripture. I pray that your spirit, Lord, that you've placed within us, the Holy Spirit, would constantly prick us and Convict us of sin. Draw us close to, uh, to you, Lord God, to bring the word up in our hearts and our minds, to even, uh, Lord, draw us into a time of reading and prayer on a daily basis, Lord God, that we would remember you. And then, Lord, I pray that you would give us the words to speak, the things to share with those who desire to know, those who ask. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And I pray that you would give us your power and that your presence would be with us this week, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen, amen. Why don't you stand? We're going to worship on our way out. God bless you all, and I pray you have a wonderful week.